standard issue for all women. Hello there, Mickey here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. I am proper lucky that my job is mainly talking to brilliant women. I love it. And quite often I have to put my professional pants on and not just stare at them in awe. Possibly never more so than when I met up with Pulitzer Prize winning journalists Jodie Cantor and Megan Tuohy, the two New York Times reporters who broke the Harvey Weinstein story in October 2017. They've just published a book, She Said, which is the story behind the breaking of that story and which also takes the time to catch up with a lot of the women involved with the Weinstein allegations as well as other brave, bold women who have come forward with allegations against other men in positions of power to find out where and how they are now. It is an astonishing, powerful, page-turning read. Seriously, buy it, borrow it, get it read. A couple of notes about the interview... At one point during my chat with Jodie and Megan, I refer to a certain amount of money not being life-changing. I am fully aware that is a considerable sum and it could, of course, change lives. But I'm hoping you'll understand it within the context of what we're talking about. I think a lot of people think that cash involved in these non-disclosure settlements is in the high six figures, if not millions. And as a rule, it, it really isn't, which is something that surprised me. It's even less once the lawyers have taken their cut particularly when you take into account that these women are quite often at the beginning of their career and then no longer able to work in the industry or sometimes the country that they love. Also, we ended up recording this in Jodie's hotel bedroom. And yep, we absolutely had a chuckle at that at the time. No bathrobes were involved, but you can occasionally hear the rustling of sheets that is bound to occur when three women huddle round a microphone on a bed. Finally, so you know who's who, Megan is the first to answer a question and Jodie is the softer spoken of the two. Both are magnificent. See, couldn't resist a little bit of fangirling. Hello, I am with Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times journalist Jodie Cantor and Megan Tui, the two incredible, tenacious investigative reporters who two years ago broke the Harvey Weinstein sexual harassment story. Jodie, Megan, Hello. Hello. You've put the story of how you broke the news about Weinstein and how that led to an even bigger picture being revealed into a book. She said breaking the sexual harassment story that helped ignite a movement is astonishingly good. Thank you. Why did you decide to make it into a book? Well, we realized that that first story that we wrote in October of 2017 was really just the beginning. Um, We had at that time been able to connect some of the dots of how this alleged predator had been able to engage in this type of behavior for decades and how he'd been able to cover his tracks. But since then, we have worked through additional reporting for this book to bring together other pieces of the puzzle, Mm -hmm. to pull the curtain back on the machinery that was in place, to silence women and the individuals and institutions that became complicit in Weinstein's abuse. And because the Me Too movement has come to mean so much to so many people. We really wanted to plunge readers into our investigation and and ground zero and to sort of show how this investigation played out behind the scenes. So much of our reporting was initially off the record, the first hush phone calls with actresses, up through the final confrontations with Weinstein himself. And we really wanted to bring readers into that process with us and show how it unfolded. Yeah, I guess a lot of people feel because it was a news story that they know the story. So why would you read the story behind the story? But man, it reads like a thriller. Did it feel like that when you were in it? Absolutely, because there are so many surprises, even in terms of who helped and who hindered. Like if you could have told us before all of this happened 
that one of Harvey's biggest stars, Gwyneth Paltrow, would have ended up being one of our secret sources who was very helpful to the investigation. Or if you could have told us that one of the biggest feminist attorneys in the country, Lisa Bloom, who sort of, for UK listeners, Lisa Bloom, think of a sort of loud and proud victim's rights attorney who's constantly on TV and constantly talking about how much she backs women. If you would have told us that she would have secretly crossed to the other side and been aiding Harvey Weinstein, we would have been shocked. And then, you know, another part of the story we're really glad we get a chance to tell while we're here in London is that there were actually three UK women who were at ground zero of this whole thing. And I think people have this kind of you know, general image of Weinstein victims as these famous actresses. That's not inaccurate, but there's a whole second strand of women who were Weinstein's assistants Mm -hmm. over the years who have terrible accounts of this kind of abuse. And three of them, Zelda Perkins, Laura Madden, and Rowena Chu, play very key roles in this story. And they, you know, they lead kind of outwardly everyday lives. Laura lives in in Wales as the mom of, you know, four kids. And I think people here will be shocked to know that she was at the very center of this historic reckoning. When you mentioned Lisa Bloom, by the way, I just have to say that in my notes, it just says Lisa Bloom, exclamation mark, for fuck's sake. Because when I was reading, I knew she'd been involved. I knew when it was reported that she was going to be his lawyer. But she is mean and she is just like using women who she's helped to help him turn in the tables. Well, it's, it's another example of a, a lot of the new information that we learned in the course of reporting this book. We obviously knew that Lisa Bloom had crossed sides to work with Weinstein. When we were doing our investigation, we encountered her. She was by his side um, in those sort of final weeks and months as we were doing our reporting. Uh, but, you know, she has claimed uh, at the time and beyond, she said that she got, went to go work for him because she thought that he had only made inappropriate comments towards women and that she went to go work for him because she wanted to help him apologize. And in the course of our reporting, we obtained these confidential records, uh, her billing records, an hour-by-hour accounting of exactly what she was doing for him and when, and also this job audition memo that she sent him where she was basically spelling out, you know, bullet point by bullet Mm -hmm. point, all of the underhanded tactics that she was prepared to use on his behalf to help him undermine his accusers. She was doing exactly what you said. She was saying, I'm going to take all of my years of experience working with victims, harness that, and use that to help you work against them. This memo is basically a line by line of, I will smear, I will manipulate, I will lie on your behalf. The roses of this world. The Rose McGowans of this world. Yeah. You know, a reference to an actress that Weinstein feared was going to go public with an allegation of rape against him. So when this came to light, how are you guys not furious all of the time? I mean, to be honest, we want to know your reaction. Part of the reason we put this all in a book is that we want to invite you into this partnership for two and a half years. Megan and I have been working through this material, investigating. In a way, it started even earlier because, as you know from reading the book, Megan was one of the first reporters to bring to light allegations of inappropriate behavior by Donald Trump towards women. And so this material belongs to everybody. And 
we want you right there with us. I mean, we it's part of why we reprinted that very alarming Lisa Bloom memo in full, mm-hmm. because we're saying to you, we're not making this stuff up. This is an authentic document. Read the whole thing, paragraph by paragraph, in her own words, as Megan said, bullet point by bullet point, and then puzzle through it with us, you know, and ask these questions about why did she cross this line? Did did she never believe the other female clients she represented? It's so interesting. And the, the women in She Said, I found fascinating because you met all these amazing women who had been paid to shut up, basically. They'd been paid to go away, even though their lives had been thrown into chaos and upside down. They'd left jobs. They'd left countries. They'd left friends and family because they had to get away from this. So you've got all of these women who are slowly, gently, as you coax them, becoming more willing to break these agreements that they have made and talk to you in order to out Harvey Weinstein. But then on the flip side, you've got this person who was a bit of a hero for feminist rights, letting the side down. There were certainly moments of kind of cynicism in the course of our reporting where we were... You know, it wasn't just Lisa Bloom, who she wasn't the only attorney by Harvey Weinstein's side. You know, David Boies is probably one of the most famous litigators in the United States. He actually helped win the case of gay marriage before the Supreme Court and had really been sort of seen as a hero on the left. And he turned out to be one of Harvey Weinstein's longest and closest defenders. I mean, he helped Weinstein conceal and spin allegations for 15 years. And so he he also, you know, he was involved in helping Weinstein execute a contract with a private investigative firm made up of former Israeli intelligence officials that were promised a $300,000 bonus if they could put a stop to our investigation. These were sort of agents who targeted, you know, not just us as journalists, but also uh, the women that Weinstein feared were going to go public. That is, you know, on its face, such a cynical story. I mean, there are oftentimes these questions time and again where we felt like the conspiracy theories played out, the kind of conspiracy. This was really an x-ray into abuse of power and all the different individuals and institutions that can line up with the powerful to help conceal wrongdoing. On the other hand, it was also such a, like, it was also one of the most inspiring pieces of reporting that we've ever done to encounter these women, some famous, a lot, a lot of them not famous, who basically were able to kind of reach down and find the courage to participate in this investigation and help bring the truth to light, even when it potentially came at potential risk to their careers, to their personal lives, and also in the case of the women who had been silenced through secret settlements, I mean, they were taking actual legal risks in speaking with us. Somebody described the book as a competition between the cowardice of Weinstein's enablers and the bravery of the women who decided to come forward. And I really agree with that because during the actual investigation itself, it felt like which side is going to win. That's it. That's what I mean when it reads like a thriller. Because as well as the women who had accepted these settlements in order to move on, there's also the intimidation that you two were facing reporting it. Like you said, they were trying to shut this investigation down. And you've had, Megan, you've had Trump yelling at you down the phone. You've both had Harvey Weinstein yelling at you in front of you. You've both got families and stuff as well. That The intimidation is real. How do you deal with that? How did we deal with the intimidation? To be honest, we were not daunted by it. 
I remember there was a moment when Laura Madden, who we just talked about, who who was one of the first women to go on the record about Weinstein, she said that one of Weinstein's assistants had called her, trying to dissuade her from speaking, and the assistant had referred to us as cockroach journalists. You know, and to be honest, I mean, I kind of liked that because <laughs> I, because I thought I thought first of all, there's a there there. You know, they wouldn't be saying that if there weren't sort of real secrets to be discovered. And then, you know, I think one phrase you've used, Megan, is that every time they did something like that, we felt like, okay, you're showing us what you're made of, and we're going to show you what we're made of. I think also, ultimately, we have a lot of protection. We work for a powerful institution. And the people we were, in terms of the intimidation, we were much more worried for our sources. Yeah, yeah. You've touched on investigative journalism there, which is something I wanted to talk about. She said reads like a blueprint for how it should be done. So good. Was this the intention to set out this is what journalists are doing? Because as you've just mentioned there, Jodie, there is this like cockroach journalism, fake news, discrediting journalists, which will make it tougher to bring those in or with power to account. I do think that this is a time where journalism and news organizations are under attack. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, at least in the United States, they're under a strategic attack. Yeah. And we thought that we were we were so grateful to have an opportunity to basically provide readers of this book with like a step by step accounting of how this work is done. And also to show that like facts can bring about social change and that uh, when we finally were able to publish our Weinstein investigation following all of the guidelines that we implied to these type of investigations, whether you know, that's, you know, seeking corroboration of allegations to obtaining documents that serve as evidence of the, uh, you know, alleged wrongdoing. And then finally, one of the final pieces of our due process of our due diligence is going to our subject, in this case, Harvey Weinstein, and spelling out everything that we're intending to publish about him and giving him a chance to respond. Oh my God, that's when it nearly falls apart. That's when, that's when it sets off, at least in this case, you know, uh, like this complete roller coaster, 48 hour roller coaster in which he really escalated all of his tactics to try to stop us. But we're including, you know, barging into the New York Times the day before the story was set to publish. But we go through all of that process, even when it involves going, you know, toe to toe with Harvey Weinstein and all of his bullying tactics, because that is, you know, that is the process that we follow uh, to ensure the integrity of our stories and to produce what ultimately was a story in which there wasn't debate about whether or not it was accurate, whether or not it was fair or what had actually happened. The question was how to respond. One of the things that we're just, that we were excited to do was to provide a snapshot of how this type of investigative journalism works because so much of it does take place behind closed doors and out of public view that especially in the back of bars. Yeah, in the back of bars where Jody did some of her meeting with the, uh, you know, this this kind of crucial Weinstein company executive who served as a, one of our secret sources. It is it is an opportunity to to show that in the face of these you know, allegations and attacks of fake news to show how like real news and real investigations do take place. And that whole investigative process, it was such, you had this information that clearly you two believed because it came from really good sources who just couldn't go public with it. And then just finding the thread with the settlements and finding that loophole, 
How did it feel when you thought, oh my God, we've gotten in here? I remember sitting here in London in the summer of 2017, and we'd known about some of Harvey Weinstein's settlements, but, you know, as we say in the book, in investigative journalism, knowing about documents is good, seeing those documents is better, mm-hmm. having possession of those documents is best. Not only was Zelda Perkins brave enough to meet with me in London and talk about her experiences, but she had brought her settlement papers, the ones she had with her. Now, part of the sort of absurdity of Zelda and Rowena's situation, these were two women, former Weinstein assistants. Rowena had a terrible account of assault by Harvey Weinstein. She and Zelda had banded together, and Zelda had resigned uh, alongside Rowena in part to protect her. And they had ended up with this settlement that was probably the most restrictive settlement we've ever seen. I mean, they were not allowed to speak to a doctor without special permission. They were not allowed to tell an accountant where they had gotten this money without special permission. Sorry, can I just say, just for the listeners as well, this isn't millions of dollars at all. We're talking like 120000 It's It's small amounts when the lawyers have taken their share. It's not life-changing amounts particularly. And here's one of the craziest twists of all. They were not allowed to hang on to their own copies of the settlement papers, which just raises this question of how are you supposed to abide by this agreement, this ironclad agreement that you can't even have a copy of? But Zelda, who's very resourceful, had managed to kind of cadge together a few sheets of the settlement papers. And we're sitting, you know, in central London at this quiet club And she takes out these wrinkled old papers from 1998 and begins to read them to me. Miramax had a very sort of distinctive graphic logo. If you remember film from the 90s, you would remember seeing these letters at the start of so many films, like these big sort of blocky letters. And that, that font was at the top of the page. And she starts reading this, you know, on the one hand, it's this stiff legal language, but on the other hand, there's such drama to it because you see how suffocating these clauses are and that these women's stories have been wiped out of film history for almost 20 years. And also, you know, Megan wasn't physically present, but the two of us were in constant touch mm-hmm. and Megan had been egging me on and you know, texting me encouraging emojis and saying, (laughs) you will see the papers, you will see the papers. And finally seeing those black and white letters on these old wrinkle pages, just, it just made us feel like, I I can't believe this happened. I can't believe it's been erased. And I can't believe we're finally seeing it. And all I want to do is unerase it. And those were two of ultimately, you know, we were able to document that Harvey Weinstein had paid as many as 12 secret settlements to women who had come forward with allegations of sexual harassment and sexual assault against him, stretching from 1990 to 2015. And so these were, I mean, nobody would dispute that victims deserve financial recompense for what's happened to them. But what we show is that through these secret settlements, alleged predators like Weinstein have also been able to use them as tools to cover their tracks and go on to allegedly hurt more people. Well, that's the bigger picture, isn't it? I mean, obviously not dismissing or taking anything away from the women who are involved in this case and what they have been through. It's just the start of a threat. All of these men in power are clearly 
paying these secret settlements because it's been this loophole that they can use to shut down chats that would hopefully get them removed from their position, you know, sent to prison. And by the way, that was part of what was really extraordinary about that lunch with Zelda, too, because from the very beginning, Zelda felt strongly that this was about something bigger. I mean, she said to me, this is not just about Harvey Weinstein after 20 years. It's not that I have, like an overarching personal need to take him down. She said, this is about the system. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why she's become a pretty successful activist on this issue is because from the beginning, she was focused on the structural systemic questions at play. And so was the Times, by the way. This was never just about Harvey Weinstein for the New York Times. It was a sort of overall commitment to sexual harassment reporting. And we were looking at Silicon Valley. We were looking at restaurants. We were looking at factories. We were looking at academia. And so that enabled us to see some of these patterns across industries. Hello. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. So Harvey Weinstein goes on trial in January and he's out and about on bail. Having a lovely time, it seems. A couple of days before we were chatting, he was apparently at a talent show. He was definitely at a talent show. Kelly Batman called him out for being there. And his publicist released a statement saying... Harvey Weinstein was out with friends, enjoying the music and trying to find some solace in his life. And here's the kicker that has been turned upside down. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that, Megan? Well, you're right. I mean, Harvey Weinstein is set to go on a trial in the criminal prosecution of him in January. Mm-hmm. And so until then has been able to move freely about New York and Connecticut not beyond, with an ankle bracelet. This isn't the first time that he's been spotted. Oftentimes, we've had people who have had sort of chance encounters with him in restaurants in New York sort of snap pictures of him, oftentimes dining alone, and send them back to us uh, with kind of serving as reports of his whereabouts. I think this is the first event that he has been seen at publicly. And I think that the way that it unfolded in terms of, you know, certain people in the audience being very upset about his presence, but then other people being upset that he was being, that they were upset is just one little snapshot of how the sort of complicated emotions that are swirling around me too, two years after it really kind of took off in earnest. And it's actually one of the reasons that our book doesn't stop with the moment we published the Weinstein investigation. In some ways, it would have been easy for us to do that, but we report on into the year that followed as things became more complicated and things became more confusing. You know, we think that two years in, there has not been the type of adequate reforms uh, that have been put in place that have created consensus around these issues. You know, we see that there are three basically unanswered questions that are really at the heart of all of these strong sentiments. One, you know, what type of behaviors are under scrutiny? Are we only talking about serious allegations of sexual harassment and rape? Or are we talking about some of the more nuanced behaviors of sort of, you know, a supervisor placing his hand on the back of a woman employee in the workplace and the uncomfortable touching that has unsettled Uh, that has been unsettling to some people? And also, how far back are we going? Are we going back 10 years, 20 years, uh, or beyond? And secondly, what is the process by which we vet complaints? I mean, we at the 
we as journalists can and do walk readers through all of the different guidelines that we follow when reporting out these types of allegations. But I don't think that there's that type of clarity when it comes to the people who are vetting complaints, either in the workplace or even just the kind of public sentiment and attitudes that are supposed to, to line up in these cases. Yeah, it totally loses the shades of gray. I think it becomes very black and white. Right. And then finally, accountability. You know, it's it's easy for you know, it's easy to insist on accountability, but when it comes time to assigning it, it becomes much more complicated. And so, I, you know, I think it's understandable that there are a lot of complicated feelings that are swirling around Me Too at this time. But, you know, in the case of Weinstein, we also point out that this criminal trial, it's just one of many markers of accountability for him. I mean, he's also facing civil lawsuits in which victims are seeking financial recompense for the sexual harassment that they say that they've experienced at his hands. And, you know, these court cases, we don't have we don't have predictions on how the civil cases or the criminal case will play out. But one of the reasons that we wrote the book is we wanted there to be like a lasting historical record of what he has allegedly done and the impact it's had on yeah. so many, so many people. Do you want to see him go to prison? We want to see this trial play out in a fair way. And the questions about Harvey Weinstein and accountability are much bigger than just whether or not he'll go to prison. Think of it this way. There's a huge ocean of women's complaints and accusations against Harvey Weinstein, right? 80 plus women. Mm -hmm. Most of those are sexual harassment complaints. Within that ocean, there's a smaller island of rape and assault allegations. On that island, there's an even smaller little circle within which lie the stories that will be at the center of this criminal trial, which starts in New York on January 6th. It's really just two women's stories who are going to form the basis of that trial. Other women are going to be witnesses. So first of all, it's a huge mistake to see the outcome of this trial as a sort of verdict on, you know, everything Harvey Weinstein did or didn't do writ large. Look, sexual assault cases are really hard to prosecute. A lot of the stories that could be the focus of the trial can't be because of the statute of limitations. And also there are women with Weinstein stories who don't want to come forward and who don't want to press charges. So we're making no predictions about whether he is going to get convicted or whether he's going to walk in this trial. And then look at all of those sexual harassment complaints that are still in that wider ocean. Sexual harassment is illegal, but you can't go to jail for it. It's a civil offense, both in the U.S. and the U.K. You can sue for it, and so that's what's happening. But those cases are totally unresolved. You know, many, many women have brought civil cases against Harvey Weinstein. They've been packaged into this sort of larger Uber case, the status of which is very unclear. Anytime you're dealing with that number of parties sort of brought together, it's a very complicated the amount of money at stake is relatively low, and it's not clear whether Weinstein will have to pay anything out of his own pocket. It may just all be picked up by insurance companies. I know it turns out you can insure against sexual harassment. How is that? A thing? I know, I know, I know. And also, it's not clear what sort of admission of wrongdoing might be involved if there's a settlement of those civil cases. So the uber question to watch is not just. Will he be convicted in this trial? But will Harvey Weinstein face 
any legal accountability whatsoever in the face of all of this. It's so depressing. And just that whole idea that is put forward time and time again by, by judges of this man, all his life's been turned upside down. We've, we've heard it with Weinstein, we've heard it a little bit with Trump, we've heard it with Brett Kavanaugh, we've heard it with Brock Turner, who is found guilty, and it's always like, but you know, the, what about their lives as well? Excuse my language, but fuck them. Why are we still putting them centre of every story? Well, especially... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, well, you know, I think that one of the things that we do in our book, the last piece of reporting that we did, was to actually bring together... Uh, the women who had been central to a lot of these stories. You were definitely putting the women forward, (laughs) and that is incredible. Yeah, so this was, you know, this group interview that we conducted in January uh, involved, uh, you know, Rachel Crooks, who was one of the first women to come forward with an allegation, go public in the pages of the Times with an allegation of sexual misconduct against President, well, then-candidate Donald Trump. It included Laura Madden, Zelda Perkins, Ashley Judd, Gwyneth Paltrow, some of the women who were essential to the Weinstein story, and Christine Blasey Ford, who was, um, you know, obviously came forward very publicly with an allegation of sexual assault against uh, now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And we really wanted to, we know, I mean, we know, we know what happened to President Trump. We know what happened to uh, Kavanaugh, who's now sitting on the Supreme Court. We're tracking closely what happens to Harvey Weinstein, who continues to make headlines if he does appear in public like that. But what happened to the, you know, what what happened to these women on the other side of coming forward? Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that they were all involved in these stories that have helped sort of shift the culture. We know the public impact of what they've done, but what was the private ramifications for them uh, in speaking up and stepping forward? And it was a real mix. The one thing that was clear was that it had been a transformative experience for all of these women. But in terms of what that transformation looked like and what the impact looked like, there were a variety of reports. Uh, there were some women who, like Zelda Perkins, who hit, was really in breaking her secret settlement with Harvey Weinstein, went on to then battle secret settlements more broadly here in the UK, has really waged a march into parliament and took this, you know, went on a public campaign against them here. But there were people like Christine Blasey Ford, who, you know, a couple months after making her allegation, was still living in high She had received a lot of letters and applause from women and other supporters who, you know, saw her as a hero, but she was also facing death threats and was, uh, had been scared to return to her family home. So that's just one example of the different experiences that can come along with this, like, really difficult and brave work of stepping forward. I don't know if you've seen Netflix's Unbelievable or if you've seen any BoJack Horseman recently, but Me Too and women coming forward and the ramifications of that for the women and for the men involved has definitely made its way into popular culture as well, and I think that can only be a good thing, and those two shows are handling it incredibly well. I just wondered what you would like to see for the Me Too movement now. I think what we've seen is that... Me Too is an example of social change in our time, but it's a test of social change in our time as well. And at a time when everything is so fractious and people can barely agree on what the truth is, Mm -hmm. there has been forward momentum for Me Too. There's been real progress. But I think what we want to see is whether some of these questions are solvable. Like a few minutes ago when Megan named those sort of three questions, you know, at the heart of Me Too about the scope of behavior, about facts, about accountability. 
you know, I think we'd like to be doing this podcast with you in 10 years, you know, and be sitting around this nice uh, bed in this hotel room and say, yeah, you know, through deep conversation and through continued reckoning, um, we've actually been able to come to some new compacts about how this should work. Because I think as we sit here right in 2019, it sort of feels like the old rules on sex and power have been swept away, but the new ones haven't been established yet. You know, but, but Megan and I are not activists. We're journalists. And what we can help people to do is just to continue to see the problem. And so we're, you know, even as we're talking about this book, I mean, we're, we're reporting and investigating every single day and that's what we'll continue to do. Are you meeting people in shady corners of bars? We would not possibly be able to tell you that. (laughs) Thank you so much for chatting to me. She Said is incredible, and I recommend everyone to read it. Have a great time in the UK. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks. Standard Issue for All Women.